Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode of the Journalism Salute, we're joined by Carol Marvin Miller and Daniel Chang of the Miami Herald. They produced a five-part series published in April 2021, Birth and Betrayal. This was about a Florida government program that was intended to help families of children who suffered catastrophic brain injuries at birth, but the program did not work as intended. This piece, which had print and video components, just won the Collier Prize, a journalism award focusing on investigative and political reporting on state governments. The award was announced at the White House Correspondents Association dinner on April 30th. They've won multiple other awards too. Carol is the deputy investigations editor. She's written about children, elders, and people with disabilities for more than 25 years. Daniel covers healthcare and health policy. He's been with the Herald for nearly 22 years. First of all, congratulations on the award. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Before we get into the story, typically when we bring journalists on, we talk about their career path a little bit, but I want to go slightly different here. When was the moment for each of you where it crystallized that government investigative and watchdog work was what you wanted to do? You know, I would have to say the moment probably was, not to be facetious, but I I think I've always had a desire to hold power to account, to, to challenge authority, perhaps. And, and certainly if in a program like this, where the deck seemed very much stacked against the people who were hurt the most um, in, in these um, situations, it seemed like a natural for, for this type of story. It had, had the right ingredients for it. So maybe that's not directly answering your question, but, but I just think that for most journalists, there is that desire to, to hold power to account and to, man, to question authority. I think for me, the seed was planted when I was either a teenager or young adult. I can't remember exactly which. And I read the book from Gene Miller, a Miami Herald reporter and editor. He had written a book called Invitation to a Lynching. It was about two Black men from the panhandle who were wrongly convicted of a a killing. And he... He said subsequently that he wrote the book to catch the attention of the Florida governor and attorney general, hoping to get pardons for the two men. And it did just that. Both Pitts and Lee, the book was about Pitts and Lee, were removed from death row. They were granted their freedom. And that book was just an epiphany to me that you could put words to paper or typewriter and have that kind of an effect on the lives of other people. And as my career progressed and I started to do more stories that were, as Dan said, kind of accountability oriented, it was very, very reinforcing. And I began to organize my career in such a way as to have more opportunities to do that kind of work. We have many younger aspiring journalists that I think listen to this podcast. And I wonder, was there a lesson that you learned earlier in your career, like really early in your career, that you still apply to your work uh, on a story like this? Daniel? I think that one of the early lessons that I learned in my career was how to 
how to do an interview, how to conduct an interview with somebody who has experienced a tragic event. And I think very early on in my career, I was perhaps less sensitive to the emotions perhaps that those individuals were, were perhaps experiencing and just trying to get answers to my questions. And, you know, that along with learning to listen to other people it, it are, are, are two lessons that I thought served us very well in our reporting and that, and that I learned early on. I, I want to riff a little bit off of what Dan just said. I, I agree with absolutely everything he said. I, I think that one of the things I learned doing this kind of work is the importance of getting those people into your reporting, allowing them to speak for themselves, giving them a place of real prominence in your stories. When I was much younger, I remember doing a story about people with disabilities that did not quote a single person with a disability or a parent, parent or caregiver for a person with disabilities. And my editor at the time pulled me aside and said, what are you doing? How can you write a story about this population and not quote someone who either is such a person or advocates for them? And the more work like this that I did, the more I learned that the stories were much, much more powerful when you included strong, powerful, colorful narratives about the people uh, you were writing about. We just did a episode, a couple of episodes ago about the very thing that you just spoke about, centering people with disabilities in stories. And that's been a constant theme of the podcast through the 70 plus episodes that we've done. Now, the story that you won an award for here is about Nika, the Florida Birth-Related Neurological Injury Compensation Association. This was supposed to provide a payment to families that had births that went wrong and produced neurological issues often uh, very, very serious ones. It was meant to compensate families, but also to protect OBGYNs from lawsuits. It ended up doing more of the latter, provided families with considerable frustration. Now we'll get to this in a second. The article ended up having a considerable impact. The program was audited, legislation was passed, signed by Governor DeSantis, and a new NICA board was put in place. We'll get to that in a sec. You said in an earlier interview, Daniel, that the story took two years to report. Can you explain the origin of it and the first things that you did, maybe the first meetings that you had? I, I, I think that Carol might be better suited to explain the origin sure. of it. We were working on a on, on a, a another story, another series of stories about Florida's oversight of physicians and whether or not it protected patients as much as it protects doctors. And, and during the course of that reporting, talk to some sources. We were on the phone with a lawyer who represented a family we wanted to talk about after they had been the victim of medical malpractice. And at the end of that interview, the, the lawyer said something along the lines of, do you have a minute? I'd like to tell you about something else that you might find at least as interesting. And that lawyer mentioned NICA to us and had said, here is this state agency that was created to protect doctors, but pledged to provide adequate care and compensation to families of children who were born 
with catastrophic brain injuries. And if you look closely, you'll find they're not doing that. And instead they're hoarding cash. At that moment, we realized they had uh, about 1.5 billion in assets. It's now up to about 1.7 billion. And it took Dan and I a few weeks, maybe a month to take a good hard look at this group when we realized that the lawyer was right. And this was really a, a terrific story that had never been written. So we uh, finished what we were doing and we kind of uh, transitioned ourselves very quickly to a project on this. So both of you had have done, you both have upwards of 20 years experience. You've done uh, a lot of similar reporting to this before. It's not anything new. What were some of the things that you knew you were going to run into uh, along the way? The, the biggest challenge in stories involving communities of people who are suffering is finding people to talk openly and on the record about their trauma. And my experience having done stories about children and families who have suffered abuse, stories about people with disabilities, my experience has been that you're going to have to do some real arm twisting to get people to talk with you openly and especially to get them to agree to speak with you on the record, which, which brings me to something that, that I, I like to, to tell other journalists, and that is actually don't do that arm twisting because it seldom works. More effective is to give people space when they're reluctant to talk to you to try to be persuasive uh, to say, I think this is going to be good for you and you might actually enjoy it, but I'm not going to twist your arm, take a few days, take a week or a month and think about it and then get back to me. And I have found that that's much more effective, but finding those folks who are willing to open up their living rooms and their hearts to you and go on video and talk about the most traumatic events in their lives is very, very difficult, but you have to do it because these stories have no power and they will have no effect on lawmakers or the people you are seeking to influence if there aren't real people in them talking about themselves. And, and I think that goes back to what I mentioned earlier about interviewing people with a sense of compassion and with listening and, and certainly you know, being sensitive to what they've been through and, and their reluctance, understanding their reluctance perhaps to want to relive their trauma for you. And, and that's where sort of maybe explaining to them that, that this, this might help, not just them, but others can, can help perhaps persuade or at least let the subjects know that you're not just there looking for a quick hit, you know, story and you're out of there, that you really want to understand what they've been through and be able to relay that effectively to, to readers. Is this one of those things where you have to have, well, not have to, but we're going through it as a reporter first time, second time, third time, you, you kind of develop an ability to, to do that? Yeah, I think it's, it's like any other skill that you learn. Hopefully, if you're doing it right, and you'll get better at it as you go along. And so, yes. So there was 
there, and I know I heard you talk about this on the Long Firm podcast. There was one woman in particular whose story, hopefully I'm pronouncing this right, Jasmine Acebo. Her story mm-hmm. was particularly tragic. Was there anything that that took place during your dealings with her that would be uh, a story worth relating to aspiring reporters? Oh, wow. Jasmine Acebo is someone we found in the records. We, we kind of found her banded by accident. I hate to say this publicly because it will empower the, the bad guys, but someone had improperly redacted a document. And uh, so we, we found her name and we contacted her. And we did not have to persuade her in the least. She was utterly William and e- willing and eager to, to talk with us. The, the thing about Jasmine is that she lived through some incredible trauma. She gave birth due to malpractice to a child who had uh, sustained catastrophic neurological damage and uh, was capable of doing virtually nothing on her own, including breathe consistently. And that was a very, very difficult interview for all of us, Dan and Emily Michaud, our videographer. And we brought our editor along because we really wanted him to see where this project was going and what we were learning. And we wanted him to meet someone who had been in NICA. Jasmine's, I'm sorry, Jamie, Jamie's daughter, Jasmine, was deceased at the time we interviewed her. And I will tell you that over the course of a give or take three hour interview, none of us lasted the entire time without shedding tears. It was that difficult. I I wanna add to you that in a way, you know, this organization Nike kind of did themselves in because The reason that Jamie was eager to talk, I think, and in hindsight, is because they didn't really listen to her, you know? And perhaps more importantly, they did their best, NICA did their best to keep these families from knowing anybody else who was in the program. There were times after our stories broke and these parents were approaching the legislature on their own when they said that it felt like they were part of a secret society. Nike did not lift a finger to put them in touch with each other for emotional support, to help people who've been in the program, perhaps orient newcomers. And so by keeping these families apart and and not doing anything to facilitate their ability to get to know each other, Nike created this atmosphere where a lot of folks felt like they were suffering alone. And, And so when somebody called and said, hey, you know, we're curious about this program we heard about. It's it's almost like that old saying where people say, you know, you don't always remember their face, but you remember how people made you feel. And she remembered very much how Nike had made her feel. Her daughter had been, had passed away a few years earlier, but she very much remembered how Nike made her feel throughout. And that, that came through. So we, you know, in a way I've almost feel lucky, but like I said, Nike kind of did it to themselves. And when reporters contact them, they make it clear you're not alone. Certainly, there are many others 
like you. You said something that was particularly interesting to me. I have a, a couple of things that I want to get to, but one was bringing the editor along. That That's interesting from the perspective of, okay, you're, you're at the Miami Herald. I interview a lot of people that are much smaller organizations where the resources are a little more challenged to do that. But to have that luxury, because I imagine that once the editor comes in, they're now not just experiencing the story, they're feeling the story. And that probably changes perspectives, I would imagine. I'm just curious what the you can relay of that person's experience. I, I do projects only. And these are endeavors that take an immense amount of time from conception to execution, to writing, to publishing. And you've got to keep your bosses on your side throughout what could be a very long process. Our editor's name is Casey Frank. He is the uh, senior editor for investigations. And I have only nice things to say about him. You don't have to kind of drag Casey along, kicking and screaming. He is there with you. But I have found over many, many years that there's a real benefit to taking your editor on one or two of those field trips, I call them. It's, it's one thing for you to be debriefed by your boss and explain what you found and try to express that emotion and that feeling. And, and yes, the dry facts. It's another to have her or him sitting in the room with you while the subject of your reporting is crying openly and, and barely able to catch her breath and showing pictures of her deceased daughter and explaining in, in tragic detail what befell her. And no amount of debriefing can, can really express that to your boss. And I, I, I think that Casey was much more committed uh, to what we were doing after that interview. And he was already with us from the beginning. But as, as Dan was saying, you remember what you felt more than anything else. And he felt what she was feeling, as did the rest of us. To speak about something that's, I guess, maybe a little less exciting, paper trails in a story like this are certainly vital. The reporting team and ProPublica investigators went through more than 1,200 NICA claims in total, 4,600 pages of Jasmine's records. There was more you wanted to get, but you legally couldn't get. I know that a lot of this is done electronically now, and there are software programs that you can uh, get that do certain things for you. But I was just wondering, what do you receive, and how do you implement all of that into what you write? In, in this project, we had a data bank that was tremendous. We discovered that every NICA claim had to be made at a state administrative court, the uh, Florida Division of Administrative Hearings, and their records are not only open, but they are aggregated publicly on a website. We got one of our data people to scrape the website and create a large spreadsheet of every case that had been filed. And then we opened up every single one of them, which took months. And we evaluated the data in the spreadsheet and we looked for cases that were illustrative of what we wanted to report. I, I found that to be not only really worthwhile, but absolutely fascinating 
I'm not your typical reporter. I love sitting at a table going through thousands of records. It's exciting to me. And I think that you have to do that. You, you, you can't understand whatever issue you're reporting on until you have lived in those records for a while. So that was really what, what worked for us was to go through the records one by one by one, look for the, the ones that we could use, but also just to understand the issue. We, we were not proficient in NICA speak until we, have lived, we had lived at the Division of Administrative Hearings for several months and, and our outline changed. Everything about the project changed after we'd been through first the records and then also analyzed the data. Yeah, those, those DOA records were the foundation. And then, you know, that leads us to families, which leads us to their records. And, you know, it, it, it kind of all builds on each other. So I just completed a project, and this was a project on a much more pleasant subject that involved 40 interviews, 30 hours of audio, a very comprehensive amount of work. And I struggled throughout it trying to organize it. And I'm curious, again, looking at this from the perspective of a reporter trying to learn how do you do certain things using this story as an example, how did you organize everything that you had? We use uh, Google Drive as our mode of organization. And we've been doing this over many years and different projects. We create outlines there. We park all of our records there. We park our interviews there. We write our stories. I am a firm believer in hyper-organization. If you're going to do a project in which you are reviewing thousands and thousands of records, you've, you've got to organize them efficiently or you're just going to get lost. One thing we do that I think is helpful is when we go through large records, we annotate them. If I'm reading a, a hundred page deposition, I will create an outline of everything in the deposition so we'll know how to find it later. If you don't do that, you're never going to find what you're looking for. It, you know, the, the amount of material you've got is just too massive. I, I think Carol's 100% correct. Organization is really important and, you know, using things like Excel spreadsheets to help you organize yourself and, and you know, maybe, you know, even creating an outline can sometimes help. So, what what other hurdles did you run into that you had to overcome during this? Go ahead. Uh, hurdles that we had to overcome. I mean, you know, I, I think there was the one case that I, I think Carol is, is probably better versed in where we lost that we tried to get the names of some of the children who had passed away while they were in the program because it would have allowed us to sort of perhaps focus on on those cases and to 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 find more stories of, of, of parents. I, I I'm kind of drawing a blank right now thinking about hurdles, but look, I, I think just you know reporting the stories, putting them into words and videos and making sure that uh, you know everything from from cut lines to promotions to you know, the, the little boxes that pull out are, are correct and all work together. You know, it's the, that, that's, that's a hurdle, but that's one that we, that we enjoy and, and are eager to do. 
but I have a feeling we talked a little more about recording hurdles, and I, I apologize for, for drawing a blank at the moment, but maybe Carol can, can come up with something. I think one of the most challenging aspects of this project was dealing with an organization that truly believed it was righteous and was willing to do anything it took to fight our reporting. And that manifested itself in all kinds of different ways. Dan mentioned our lawsuit. We sued to get some additional records that we thought were public under Florida's very generous open government laws. And we lost. NICA went before a judge and their lawyer actually had the audacity to argue that we were seeking to obtain the names of catastrophically disabled children and then publish them in the newspaper to embarrass people, an argument that to this day I find incredibly insulting. But they, they fought us in all kinds of different ways. They handed over records that they were absolutely required to hand over but they did not make our job easy in other ways. And the thing that really bothered me the most was they hired an extraordinarily powerful publicist in Tallahassee to represent their interests. And the publicist launched a public relations campaign on their behalf that was borderline dishonest. He got a guy who runs a website to print a story that was very flattering of the people we were writing about, but not really true. He convinced a guy who calls himself a children's advocate to write a column for the newspaper in Tallahassee saying how wonderful NICA was and how it was a tremendous steward of Florida's taxpayer money though in fact it doesn't spend taxpayer money. And so even before we were, we, we were able to publish, we were up against a public relations machine that was set up to dispute what we were doing and make us look like evil people. And that made it very difficult because of course we felt very strongly that what we were writing was not only appropriate, but really, really important to the folks we were writing about. Had you encountered anything like that before? At that no, level? Nothing as well organized as, as this machine was. Well, the public relations company that represented them is probably one of the most effective, well-heeled, powerful public relations uh, firms in Florida. The guy who runs it is extremely well-connected and he knew what he was doing. And from, from that, though, a lot of things uh, happened after the piece was published. Uh, I'll let you tell what happened. What was the impact of the reporting from a legislative perspective? The impact of the reporting was pretty, pretty immediate. I think a couple hours after we published in April, the state's chief financial officer, who's a statewide elected official, issued a press release saying that this was uh, this was not acceptable, that he was going to launch an investigation, calling for an audit, 
and essentially expressing some certainly surprise, maybe some shock, and and promising to reform the board, which the legislature also picked up. They one of the bills that this pricey PR firm like a hired to help polish their image did was to suggest to them that they try to propose a bill that would make them look generous by raising the amount that was awarded to families. And I know that we quoted them in the story because we got their records and their emails saying, even if it doesn't pass, it'll look good. Well, that, that bill that they, they thought that they would, you know, use to burnish the image became uh, a reform bill that did a lot more than they ever wanted. So, you know, in addition to reviewing all of those cases in NICA and, and all of the sort of administrative court records, we got a lot of emails, a lot of emails between attorneys and certainly also between them and their new PR firm. And, and it, it was evident uh, that for a long time, NICA did not want anybody, any legislature, any, le- any, any bill that would open the NICA law and potentially change the organization significantly. They had raised this as a concern. They had raised this as a reason to oppose prior efforts to try to bring some moderate, mild reforms. Uh, they really didn't want anybody messing with the, with the law that created it. Well, what they got was exactly that uh, because suddenly, you know, the organization that was initially created to protect doctors and hospitals from malpractice liability for these specific types of injuries, you know, wasn't just serving doctors and hospitals. They added two seats to the board of uh, trustees and removed all the previous members. I think they all stepped down because they saw the writing on the wall. But in addition to representing doctors who participate, doctors who don't participate, hospitals and malpractice liability insurers, uh, the board now has a seat for a parent who has a child in the program and a seat for an advocate of, of people with disabilities. So that they've got more representation. In addition, they've got many more benefits that 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 really uh, account for the fact that NICA doesn't just have to provide for these children. It has to also provide for the families who have to take care of them, and they have to also address mental health needs. NICA was very strict about what they would cover, and it had to be directly related to the injury or forget about it. They weren't going to cover it. And so, you know, suddenly for a family, a parent and siblings to have $10,000 worth of mental health coverage uh, a year, that's huge because it acknowledges the work that they do and how how difficult it is. And so there are even more reforms that they adopted this year, but I'm going to help Carol pick up on that. The, the very first bill only included mental health benefits for families that are still in the program. And what resulted from that was two or three board meetings in which the parents of deceased children spoke eloquently and powerfully about their families and There was really no way that that board could ignore them. There were parents over and over and over again, mostly moms, showing up at these board meetings on Zoom, and they were crying, and and some of them were screaming, and they were emotionally very wrought. And uh, what resulted was an agreement from the board to uh, provide mental health counseling to the the families of kids who died. 
those families said that their lives were not the same, they would never be the same, that their other children had been permanently and profoundly altered by what had happened. And up until that moment, Micah was basically saying, you know, tough titties. And now, as you said, all of these things have happened since, and I feel like that's one way of measuring success in what you do. Are there any other ways that you measure success in what each of you do in your work? We still hear from some of these moms and dads. We get emails from them. They text us phone calls, and they are so grateful for how this all turned out. The, both the families whose children are still alive and in the program and the families of deceased children who got a, a little bit for their suffering. They got money and they got some benefits and they are incredibly grateful that their lives have been improved some. So that to me is the, really the, the biggest measuring stick of all. So the last question is always the same. The show is called The Journalism Salute. We're saluting you for your work. We'd like each of you to pay it forward. Is there a person or group that you're not affiliated with that you would like to salute for their good work, whether it be in this field or another? Yes, I think so. So I, it, it's not in this field, but it's, it's, you know, I would like to salute the Florida Health Justice Project and the folks there who have helped us, people like Katie DeBreer and Miriam Harmatz who are attorneys and represent people who have often, you know, no, no access to health care and, and perhaps are also facing other barriers to access to care through public hospitals or Medicaid. And, and they, help, they help a lot of people, including journalists who, who can tell their stories. So I'd like to, I'd like to, to give them a salute. I want to salute my friend Corey Johnson and his colleagues at the Tampa Bay Times, Rebecca Wollington, Eli Murray, who did a terrific series of stories called Poisoned about a lead smelter in Tampa Bay that was harming workers in the community. I want to salute all reporters who do this kind of journalism. It's very, very difficult. It, you know, in newsrooms, people kind of make fun of us and say, yeah, she's on the story a year club or, you know, he gets to write rarely. And I don't think they understand the level of commitment and the difficulty that goes into nurturing something like this over a long period of time. I want to salute advocates uh, for the kinds of people that, that I write about, uh, children, folks with disabilities, elders, people with mental illness. Their advocates do God's work because some of these are folks who cannot advocate for themselves. There is no lobby for abused children. There are few effective advocates for kids in juvenile justice facilities. And the folks out there who are their voices 
and don't get paid for it and they get harassed and harangued, I salute them too. Carol Marvin Miller, Daniel Chang from the Miami Herald, the winners of the Collier Prize. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thanks. I asked the Collier Prize Award Administrator, Ted Brightus, a professor at the University of Florida, what made Daniel and Carol's investigative work so impressive? You know, I, I think among the judges, what you're looking for in terms of, you know, sort of statistical validity is consistency. And among the seven judges who looked at all of the finalists, and there were some incredibly impactful investigative reporting projects, Carol and Daniel's project on this, this program that had, had abandoned these families in Florida who have brain damaged children. And the program was specifically set up to help to help fund, you know, some of their financial needs and their equipment needs for, you know, for, for again, for brain damaged children. It, it's just, it was shocking. And all of the judges thought it was, you know, just a, a wonderful accountability story. It had a good outcome because the legislature, you know, changed things up after it was exposed the, the the flaws and the failures. And of course, that's one of the things that we always look for, for, you know, as an investigative reporter is impact. You know, what, what happened after you exposed or revealed something? Did, did things change? Did the system change? And in this case, it did. And, and, and that, that was, that was, you know, it was, it was a really powerful case. I imagine that you have a sense of the pitfalls and challenges that come from doing a story like this one, and also from the stories that were uh, runners up. Can you explain them from a broad perspective, the difficulty of trying to do pieces like this? Yeah, they're so, they're so in-depth and challenging, right? So you need, to, you need to persuade and convince families who are vulnerable and families who are, are really going through tough times to open themselves up and trust you to come into their into their homes and 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 help tell their stories you need to authenticate everything you need to make sure that what they're telling you is actually factual and truthful and not not just a point of view you want to back it up with documents so there's public records requests that you're you're having to file and negotiate and and try to get those records back and in this case you know Carol and Dan were under the gun because they were doing this really, you know, long-term reporting as the legislature was meeting in Florida. And of course, they wanted to publish the piece while the legislature was still in session. Lawmakers in Florida only meet for 60 days out of the entire year. And then it's a part-time legislature. So then they, they go back to their home district. So they knew they only had this short window of 60 days to publish the piece and still have an impact. And so, you know, they, they were... They were especially challenged just logistically to do that. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.